Welcome to California Groundbreakers, which focuses on the place that starts trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done nationwide and around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. We've created a new podcast series called This Changes Everything, which focuses on what California will look like in the post-pandemic future. We'll be talking with California groundbreakers about how they see the Golden State changing for the better, for the worse, or still to be determined as we move out of shutdown. If you like what you hear, please consider making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support Us link on our SoundCloud podcast page or on the Donate tab of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. On February 24th of this year, California was the first state in the U.S. to hit the milestone of 50,000 deaths due to COVID-19. The hardest hit area in the state was Los Angeles County, which was, back in the winter months, the epicenter of COVID-19 deaths in the country and the world. What the past year has shown in those two areas is the coronavirus's oversized impact on lower-income communities of color and it has put a harsh spotlight on the sad state of our separate and unequal healthcare system. Even though the coronavirus infections have sharply dropped and the CDC is easing up on rules around masks and mingling, what are we going to do about California's healthcare system and our shell-shocked hospitals? How can we make sure we prevent so many unnecessary deaths among the people who cook your food, clean your houses, take care of your kids, and do all the essential work we rely upon them for? Join us as we talk with Dr. Elaine Batchelor, the CEO of Martin Luther King Jr. Community Hospital in Los Angeles, which was the ground zero of COVID-19 deaths in California during those dark days of last winter. She'll tell us what went wrong last year and why, and what needs to happen now so we can address California's major healthcare challenges and do better next time. Hi everyone, my name is Vanessa Richardson and I'm Executive Director of California Groundbreakers. Thank you for joining us today. So we're recording this episode on April 30th and it has been, give or take a day or two, 13 and a half months since California started shutting things down due to the coronavirus pandemic. But the darkest days hit us about five months ago, back in December, when COVID-19 deaths started really besieging us. January was the peak month when we were averaging more than 560 deaths a day. And as Caleb said up top, we reached that milestone of 50,000 deaths in February. And the vast majority of those deaths were happening in Los Angeles County, and the people in a very particular group, a lower income community of color. This pandemic has produced one potential benefit in a grim sort of way, and that is it has shown a harsh light on the importance of game-changing investments in healthcare and public health. It feels like the damage to communities of color, the damage to the economy, along with the racism crisis, which is a public health emergency of equal proportions, are like wake-up calls for the future. And they've created an opportunity for us to do better and create a healthcare system and public health structure in California that benefits a lot more people than it does now, ideally everyone. So I have invited a person who knows California's hospitals very well, and she especially knows the damage that COVID-19 has caused in California because she has seen it up close for the past 13 and a half months. And she's joining us here to talk about what those game-changing investments in healthcare, hospitals, and public health should be. I'd like to introduce Dr. Elaine Batchelor. 
She's chief executive at Martin Luther King Jr. Community Hospital in Los Angeles. And that was pretty much the ground zero hospital for COVID-19 cases and the ground zero of California and the US during those dark times of December and January. So Dr. Bachelor, or may I call you Elaine? Um, you either for, one. Thank you for joining us. People call me Dr. B. Dr. B, I'm gonna call you Dr. B. <laughs> so I, I think we all know, again, or at least we read the headlines about the dark days of winter 2020, 2021, um, overcrowded hospitals, overwhelmed uh, everybody. But I wanna know right now, April 30th, what's the status report is in this war against coronavirus? As the general of your hospital and mustering your troops, where do you stand right now in terms of reducing infection uh, cases, death rates, and in the efforts to get people vaccinated? What's the status report? Sure. So, Vanessa, thank you for um, inviting me to be part of this conversation. It's great to be talking with you. And it was a difficult winter, and we're glad that it's over. And we're also glad that the number of cases of COVID in California are declining. And the status of the hospitals today is nothing like what it was this winter. We now have very few cases of COVID. Uh, I think we have about somewhere between five and seven COVID patients in the hospital today. At the peak, we had more like 150 in the hospital. So the, the number of cases has gone way down and we are getting back to normal hospital operations and we are focusing a lot of our efforts on vaccinations in the community. How are those how are those going because right now it seems like there's a lot of media attention on vaccination rates and maybe they're not as high in some areas as they are or should be. Uh, what is it like uh, in your area? Sure. So it has been uh, an interesting um, undertaking because we kind of went from a shortage of vaccine to now having an adequate supply, but the pause in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine does seem to have undermined confidence a little bit because the volume of people who are now making appointments and showing up at our vaccine clinics has gone down. We have done a lot of work to educate the community, to get the word out in the community about the availability of the COVID vaccines, about their safety and efficacy. We, have, um, we are sponsoring both stationary vaccine clinics and mobile pop-up clinics that are in the community in locations that we know have been COVID hotspots. So for example, we have a vaccination clinic in the parking lot of Superior Grocery Store. We did the employees of the store and we're doing um, the surrounding community. We have a pop-up clinic near Jordan Downs Housing Project. We've gone to churches, to senior housing, to schools, to boys and girls clubs. So we're doing both in the community and um, at our healthcare sites. So I wanted to ask you about the efforts that you have been working on for years since you've been CEO there at the hospital. But I think right now, I wanna focus on the topic that I think for a lot of us, we've really learned or are learning about uh, in the past 13 months about 
public health and healthcare in California and how there it has really shown a really harsh spotlight on how it's not really serving people in low-income communities, uh, minority populations, and, and it's, this has been around since before the pandemic started. But I was wondering if you can give us a sense of, for this such a big sprawling topic, what have, what lessons have we learned, I, I'm sure you learned these a, a while back, about what needs to be done to start improving the healthcare system for those who really, really need it and have not benefited from it, especially in this past 13 months? That's a great question. And I think we've learned two very important lessons and we've seen the consequences of, of these. So I think the first lesson is that public health is actually very important and public health carries out an important function for society. They are the, the place that is, is supposed to track infectious diseases to do rapid containment of outbreaks of infectious diseases. And we have underfunded our public health infrastructure in this country and in this state. And that made it more difficult for us to respond quickly and effectively to the COVID pandemic. So going forward, I think we now have a greater appreciation for what public health does, for why public health is important to all of us, and the fact that we need to invest more in strengthening our public health infrastructure. I think the other thing we've learned and seen through the COVID pandemic is the disproportionate impact that COVID has had on communities of color. And I think for those of us who work in underserved communities of color, like we do, we are not surprised by that because we know that our communities lack access to quality healthcare and to other social determinants of health. We know that they have a high burden of poorly treated chronic illness and we know that they are more vulnerable to a serious infectious disease like COVID. So we were not that surprised to see the prevalence of COVID two to three times higher in the Latino and African-American communities. We weren't surprised to see hospitalizations two to three times higher, to see death rates two to three times higher in our communities. Um, we know that our communities are providing essential workers for all of the rest of us. You know, they are running the transportation system, stocking grocery stores, uh, preparing food, cleaning up after the rest of us. And we need them to do those jobs. But in doing those jobs, they were at higher risk of getting COVID and of spreading COVID. And I hope that we now can see that it is not in any of our best interest to neglect such a large segment of our population and that we will be ready to invest more in healthcare and other social determinants of health for low-income communities. Before the pandemic hit, I remember seeing a lot of advertising from uh, healthcare chains like Kaiser is a big one uh, about wellness programs. And I got the general sense for them. It said, eat better food, exercise more, don't smoke, and you'll stay out of the hospital. But I get the sense that 
for these communities that you're talking about just now, uh, maybe it's not so easy to go out for a run in the park because there may be no park nearby or eating better food when you live in a, in a food desert, as we call it. Uh, it may not be so easy as that. So it does seem like uh, there is a sense like we should start from the beginning, uh, have a better wellness program or better sense of wellness philosophy installed and focus more money on that rather than focusing money at the point of uh, you enter the hospital with an emergency. Uh, is that where we should be restarting or putting money in? Where, where do you think the, the building blocks should consist of and, and be invested in? Um, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that is exactly right. Um, as a hospital, we see the end result of underinvestment in prevention and disease management. And um, we, you know, it's tragic that we are doing diabetic amputations and wound care as the, the number one surgical procedure at my hospital. Diabetic amputations are preventable with appropriate management of diabetes. And, you know, if we could manage weight and exercise, we could also prevent people from getting diabetes. The advice to you know, stop smoking and to eat healthy and to exercise is excellent advice. But as you pointed out, if you live in a community that lacks access to healthy food in grocery stores, if, it, if there aren't safe places outside to exercise, uh, you're, you're not going to find it very easy to follow those prescriptions. And these are what we call the social determinants of health, access to healthy food, access to safe places to exercise, transportation to healthcare appointments, um, even employment and education have an impact on health. So we definitely need to go upstream of the crisis care that we provide in hospitals which by the way is critical. And I think we have seen through the COVID pandemic how important hospitals continue to be. But we need to go upstream of hospitals and provide community-based prevention and disease management. So let's treat the diabetes before it gets to the point where we're amputating a limb or we're putting someone on dialysis because they now have end-stage kidney disease. Let's manage the diabetes. Those outcomes are completely preventable with the right type of care. We could even prevent the diabetes with access to healthy food and exercise and time to, to exercise and to shop and to cook meals. All of those things are social determinants of health that we need to address. And I wanted to ask you about your specific, specific efforts to address that I was reading up on the hospital and it sounds like uh, just a few years ago, uh, the hospital, Martin Luther King Jr. Community Hospital had the nickname Killer King. But now you have done some things, and this is before the pandemic, to make it more of a community-based uh, outreach program. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about your efforts to, to make the hospital uh, less of a, would be some more of an uh, access point uh, in other ways, besides just, you know, giving amputations and doing really heavy duty. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, as you know, we started over with a completely new hospital and a beautiful state-of-the-art facility. And um, after we established the hospital, 
we knew that we needed to move on to community care so that we could start to get in front of the chronic illness and the behavioral health conditions that are so prevalent in our community. So I can get, so the first thing that we did after getting the hospital open was we started a multi-specialty medical group that practices in the community and that provides the kind of prevention and disease management that I was just talking about. Um, the next thing we did was we started to address some of these social determinants of health. So we provide transportation for our patients. We also provide virtual care so that, that people don't have to leave their home. We provide mobile care where we actually take the care to our patients' homes. Uh, we are launching a street medicine program that will provide care for homeless people. And we also are addressing social determinants of health like nutrition. We, know, we screen our patients for food insecurity. And when we have patients who have food insecurity and have food sensitive conditions like diabetes, hypertension, obesity, we provide fresh produce um, regularly to those families. And we teach them how to prepare the produce. We teach them how to read food labels and how to shop. Um, so we're really trying to provide a more holistic and comprehensive approach to prevention and disease management and improving the health of our community. We, 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 would, we would be able to expand what we're doing a lot more if these sorts of services were adequately reimbursed by our public insurance programs. So that is something that we are advocating for, both in Sacramento and in Washington, D.C. And you're talking, uh, are you talking at least one of the programs that's Medi-Cal? Absolutely, yes. And one of the ironies of Medi-Cal is that Medi-Cal provides adequate funding for hospital care, but it doesn't provide adequate funding for outpatient community-based prevention and disease management. So we can afford to amputate a diabetic limb, but we can't afford to provide um, large-scale community-based care that would prevent that amputation. And that's what I think we need to correct. I'm also wondering when it comes to community outreach and a community-based um, focus, are there ways to get other members of the community involved in your efforts? And I'm talking about businesses, um, donors. Uh, is that something, because it does feel like healthcare, we always are looking at, you know, the legislature and, and uh, you know, state and federal government. But do you think that we should be looking more at private sector to partner with in these efforts? Um, I think we need to do all of those things. You know, we are a private hospital um, that works with the public sector. We also have a very effective fundraising foundation, and we have raised millions of dollars from private philanthropies and individuals. And a lot of times the funds that we've raised privately have allowed us to start up a new program. You know, we've used those funds to um, invest in the startup of a food program or a transportation program. And we need our public partner to help us sustain those programs over time. Um, we also think it's important to work with employers. I, I talked earlier about 
the fact that we're providing COVID vaccines in the parking lot of a grocery store. So we partnered with this grocery store to deliver vaccines to all of their, their employees. And then they allowed us to stay in the parking lot to deliver vaccines to everyone in the community. Um, we've, we put together a low cost health program for a, an employer group that we're working with directly. So I think we need all of the stakeholders working collaboratively to address these inequities that we're, we're trying to reverse. Hi, this is Caleb Clark, executive producer of California Groundbreakers Podcasts. We're working on more episodes of This Changes Everything, literally as I speak, but putting them together takes a fair amount of time and money. If you like what you're hearing in this episode and you want to hear more of them, you can help us in two ways. First, consider being a Groundbreaker supporter right now by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on the right-hand side of our podcast page on SoundCloud. That's at soundcloud.com slash Groundbreakers, Or click on the Donate tab of our homepage of our website at californiagroundbreakers.org. And if you have questions to ask about how California will change in post-pandemic times, or you want to suggest a topic to cover, or an expert to interview for an episode of This Changes Everything, email us at info at californiagroundbreakers.org and give us a few details so we can get in touch. Thanks for lending us your ears and giving us your support as well. I was also wondering about other hospitals too in your area, because when I was reading up on what was happening in Los Angeles during the winter time, your hospital came up a lot. And one thing I think I remember you talking about was the majority of COVID-19 cases were coming to your hospital, but they weren't being um, sent over to other hospitals in wealthier areas of Los Angeles. And I, I, I was just thinking, well, why not? Our hospitals, can they share the burden this way or is it just structurally set up where they don't? Yes, yeah. yeah, so, so um, sort of fairly late in the pandemic, the Federal Health and Human Services Agency began to publish data on the number of COVID patients in every hospital. And hospitals were required to report this information to HHS. And I looked at this data and I was actually pretty surprised by what I saw because what I saw was that my small community hospital had more COVID patients than hospitals that were three to four times larger, you know, than these large tertiary care medical centers. And um, I think that is structural. You know, the, the COVID patients live in my community. They come to my hospital. Unfortunately, because of the inequities that we, we just discussed, there are fewer hospital beds in this community. And because most of our community is insured either through Medicaid, or it's called Medi-Cal in California, or are uninsured, the low reimbursement rates that Medicaid pays providers means that most other providers are not very interested in serving our patients. And that means that even under normal circumstances, it's difficult for us to transfer patients to other hospitals when they need care or services that we can't offer. And that pattern was continued through the COVID pandemic. Now, one of the things that the state and county health agencies did 
that I think was very positive. Um, right before Christmas, on Christmas Eve, I sent a letter to the governor and I described the disproportionate impact that COVID was having in our community and on our hospital. The day after Christmas, he sent a team down here to meet with us. It, um, it included both state and, and county health agency representatives. And after that meeting, they began to convene a regional group of hospital CEOs. We started out meeting every day and sharing data and sharing information and talking about resources. And that did facilitate um, some transfers to facilities that were not as impacted as we were. Um, so it was a very positive step in the right direction. We also were able to get additional staffing provided um, through connections that the state made for us. So we were able to get uh, temporary nurses and respiratory therapists. So that kind of coordination and collaboration was very helpful during the pandemic, but it, you know, it's not the normal course of, of operation um, when we're not in, in an emergency situation. So we're not in, a, in as much an emergency situation now, but those relationships, those discussions that you had since December, do you see them going, continuing, uh, leading to any improvements? Um, I think, unfortunately, if we don't change the financial incentives, if we don't align the financial incentives, we won't be able to solve the problem um, because transfers are going continue to be difficult and will continue to be difficult as long as our patients are, you know, in a in a you know sort of third class status because of their insurance. Um, I will say that there are a few providers who are motivated to help our community, you know, for, for out of community benefit. And so we are having conversations with one provider in particular who has indicated an interest in helping with the um, higher level of care that we struggle with. Um, so we're hopeful that we'll, we will make progress with that particular provider. But in general, we're not going to solve the problem until we deal with the um, you know, separate and unequal funding arrangements. And that, that is really an example of structural inequity and dare I say, structural racism. I wanted to ask you about staffing um, because again, the headlines were focused on the doctors and nurses in the hospitals treating patients and how it took such a toll on them as well. And burnout uh, was a term that was used a lot. And it feels like there was an issue in California, even before the pandemic, about hiring uh, doctors and nurses uh, to, to practice general medicine in underserved communities. And now with the, we're moving out of pandemic, but it seems like the staffing issue and, and, and getting young people to enter this field might be more of a challenge. Is that the case? And, and how do we get uh, doctors and nurses to where they're especially needed in the state? That's a great question. It has been a difficult year for healthcare workers and they've done an amazing job. They've shown up every day to care for the people in their communities. And it's been a really intense experience. Um, the volume of patients was so high that 
um, during the winter surge, we had to operate outside of our normal staffing ratios. And that means that our doctors, nurses, and therapists were taking care of more patients than they would normally take care of and that we would normally want them to take care of. So it's been a very intense experience for them. Um, we have provided support for them and um, we've, we've tried to stay very close to them and understand how they're doing and what they need. And we did a good job of providing, you know, all the PPE they needed. We had an outpouring of support from the community and providing meals and other nice things for them. But we also had to provide opportunities for them to debrief and talk about the intensity of the experience of caring for so many very sick and dying patients. We actually hired a full-time licensed clinical social worker who provides both group sessions and individual sessions for our staff. We have a spiritual consultant who comes in and offers his support. So we, we think it's really important to support the staff through this time and also now because many of them held it together during the crisis. And you know now that the crisis is over, um, we wanna make sure that we don't lose them to the healthcare workforce. So um, we really do need to focus on that. The other thing we need to do is create more opportunities for people of color to enter the healthcare workforce. We know that we do not have enough Latino and African-American doctors. And we know that communities of color are more likely to develop trusting relationships with providers who share their language and their culture and their background. And I think that our efforts to get community members vaccinated for COVID is a good example of why we need to have that workforce. You know, people who are trusted to advise and recommend our um, vaccination to our community. So I think going forward, we need to do more to make careers in healthcare and medicine accessible and affordable to people from communities of color. And we, you know, we do some of this training at the hospital. We do both nurse training and we're starting physician training at the hospital. So my last question typically is, uh, what can we do? We being Californians, you know, residents, uh, voters, taxpayers. And I'll say that the reason I, I wanted to have you uh, as the person to talk to about this was, you know, not only the situation that you were having uh, back in the winter months with COVID-19 cases, but uh, a good quote that you uh, gave in an article on Medscape about the hospital and, and what it was doing before and during the pandemic. But it was really interesting to me and really hit home again, the weakness in our healthcare system that this pandemic has shown. And you were saying in this uh, article, you know, people are gradually starting to understand that we can't completely separate ourselves from our less fortunate brothers and sisters, because these are the folks that are cleaning our homes, preparing our food and restaurants, taking care of our kids, and their health is in bad shape. So it really hammered home that we are all together in this in so many ways, economically, socially, and, um, but the health system, like you said, is a separate and unequal. I was wondering, 
maybe not in a perfect world if you could do anything to change the healthcare system, but based on what you've been saying and, and you know, from your mouth to obviously the legislators ears, but also to ears of people like me, you know, how do we start, California starts, building or at least revising a better healthcare system that works for everybody? And what can we do? What can we Californians do to, to help move that along? Sure, those are great questions. Thank you for asking. I think that it starts with awareness, awareness that the separate and unequal health system that we have created is not doing an adequate job of caring for the most vulnerable in our communities. So it starts with that awareness. And I hope that COVID has given everyone a view of what that looks like. And then I would say, once we understand that we're not doing what we need to do to provide access to quality health care and other social determinants of health in our black and brown communities, that we will invest more in those social goods in our communities. And if you, you know, if someone were to press me and say, well, where's this money going to come from? I would say we've just been through a year also of a social justice movement and talk about social justice reform. And I would say, let's spend less money locking people up in jail and putting people in the criminal justice system. And let's spend more money on social goods that will keep make and keep our communities healthy. Um, we've been through a horrible year together and we've seen that what affects one part of our community affects other parts of our community. And we're going to see more of this in the future. So let's do the work that we need to do now of producing healthy communities everywhere, of providing access to community-based prevention and disease management, and, of, of, uh, and strengthening the social determinants of health for all of our communities so that we can all be healthy and have a productive economy. Dr. Beef, thank you very much for your time and for your work. Uh, we're recording this on a Friday. I hope you uh, get to take the weekend off and enjoy it. Thank you, it was a pleasure. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers, This Changes Everything, episode six, which was recorded on April 30th, 2021. Thanks to Elaine Batchelor for taking the time to talk with us. Also, thanks to Nate Graham and Caleb Clark for recording and producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you find our podcasts worth listening to in these difficult times, please make a donation and support our efforts to produce more informative and inspiring conversations about what Californians should expect in the post-pandemic future. You can do that, as well as keep tabs on upcoming podcast episodes, events, and other information about us by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.